Welcome to a Kessler Foundation Spinal Cord Injury Grand Rounds podcast featuring Trevor Dyson Hudson, MD, Director, Spinal Cord Injury and Outcomes and Assessment Research at Kessler Foundation. Dr. Dyson Hudson will be presenting Regenerative Rehabilitation Treatments for Chronic Shoulder Pain and Spinal Cord Injury. This presentation was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Thursday, April 5th, 2018, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey, and was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Spinal Cord Injury System, which is supported by a grant from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research, Nidler Grant Number 90SI5026. Nidler is a center within the Administration for Community Living, Department of Health and Human Services. Let's listen in. Anything that affects spinal cord injury, I'm interested in. Um, But what I wanted to talk today about with our Grand Rounds is a new area of research that we're starting to explore here at uh, Kessler uh, in the area of regenerative rehabilitation. And specifically, the talk I'm going to be doing is its use in chronic shoulder pain. So uh, one of my goals is to try to wrap things up before about quarter of, just because I know many of you have patients at one. So I'll try to limit my talk to about 25 to 30 minutes, provide a little time for some questions and answers at the end. And uh, you can always stay after or follow up with me. As Gene points out, I work here. So um, I'm going to give it a brief overview of shoulder pain and spinal cord injury. Uh, Define the term regenerative rehabilitation because that may be something new to you guys. I'm going to discuss some of the areas of research we've been doing here and are doing here and then specifically talk about a study that we've been doing in the past year. So as many of you know, shoulder pain is common in people with spinal cord injury. Um, Really the most common cause is rotator cuff disease or tendinosis. And many of you will hear the term like tendinitis or rotator cuff tendinitis, impingement syndrome, subacromial bursitis, bicipital tendinitis. These are all kind of part of the same uh, continuum of a disease, rotator cuff disease, okay? And any aspect of that can cause shoulder pain. Uh, this is a complication of uh, upper limb dependence in people with spinal cord injury. As you, many of you know, uh, because of the paralysis, people with spinal cord injury are forced to rely extensively on their upper limbs for their activities of daily living. You know, so not only are they propelling wheelchairs, using their arms to transfer, you know, even people who use power chairs, uh, the world is designed for able-bodied people, so you're sitting in a seated position. So a lot of times you're reaching in your environment, and this over time can also lead to overuse injuries in the tendon of the shoulder. This can have a significant impact on people with spinal cord injury. As I said, they rely extensively on their upper limbs. I don't think people think about the impact as much, but if you think about it, in spinal cord injury, level is everything, right? So if you're tetraplegic, quadriplegic, you want to regain upper limb function. If you're paraplegic, you want to get lower uh, recovery as well. So losing that upper limb because of pain is equivalent to having a spinal cord injury of higher neurological level. So I just want you to think about the impact that that can have on somebody who relies on their upper limbs. 
So this is an overuse injury. And by overuse, what I mean is, you know, if you go out and do an activity, play tennis, do something, you, you get an injury, you have a, the tendon gets injured and uh, it recovers. So, but what can happen is over time, you get this repetitive microtrauma that happens. And that microtrauma can lead to macroscopic changes, which can lead to a tendinopathy and eventually a tear. And I use the term tendinopathy. A lot of times people use the term tendinitis, and, and itis is more of an acute inflammatory reaction. When you're talking about chronic wheelchair users, that, ice, that itis becomes an osis, meaning it's, there aren't really the inflammatory cells that you would see when you have an inflammatory condition like a tendonitis. You get more of these chronic changes within the tendon, and that's primarily the population I'm talking about. This is the most common cause of rotator cuff disease in people with SCI. So, okay. So treatment, uh, really the goal is to prevent it from happening. So we work with patients, uh, with our uh, clients, to try to identify the, the best wheelchair for them. We teach them proper wheelchair propulsion techniques because we're trying to minimize that strain on the upper limb. Um, exercise to strengthen the shoulder. And then if they do develop pain, then the treatments we usually offer are pharmacological, so uh, non-steroidals, or uh, often if the pain's bad enough, people may go for corticosteroid injections. Physical therapy, which involves different modalities and exercises, all of this to try to treat that pain. Um, now some of the problems with this, corticosteroids themselves it, have degenerative effects. So repeated corticosteroid injections can actually cause damage to the tendon. So you're trying to address the pain, but in the long term, you're damaging the tendon. Now, in an able-bodied population, if after six months conservative management doesn't work, then you start to discuss with the patient surgery. Now, for an upper limb dependent population, this is absolutely a treatment of last resort. Because if you think about it, having surgery on that upper limb, after the surgery, you're supposed to completely immobilize that shoulder for a short period of time. That means the person can't transfer, the person can't propel their wheelchair. And, uh, you know, God bless them, but orthopedic surgeons aren't often used to working with people with spinal cord injury. So they'll approach the surgery do it and it's not till after the surgery that they realize that the impact of what this has on the person so they go home and you know you have a you know especially since we're dealing with spinal cord injury predominantly male population you could have a 180 200 pound man and his wife who is much smaller is trying to help him with these activities and they weren't even prepared for that so and uh, not only that, there's some studies coming out that people uh, who have shoulder surgery really don't have better long-term outcomes than those who don't, or they've even done some placebo surgeries. So, uh, and in the spinal cord injury population, they're just gonna go back to using their shoulders, so there's also a risk for poor outcomes. So clearly, 
there's alternative treatments are needed. So you might ask, what are those alternative treatments? Well, this is where regenerative rehabilitation comes in. And really what regenerative rehabilitation is, is it's an integration of regenerative medicine and then rehabilitation sciences or rehabilitation medicine. So in regenerative medicine, you're really focusing on the repair or replacement of tissues that are lost to injury, disease, or age. And you do this primarily through trying to encourage self-healing, uh, using cell-based therapies, or tissue engineering. In rehabilitation science, you're all familiar with this, right? You're using mechanical, physical stimuli to try to maximize the functional recovery of somebody who's had an injury or some type of disease process. So as I said, regenerative rehabilitation is an integration of these two ideas. And the idea is that you can't, you can't do regenerative medicine alone. There's always going to be a rehabilitation component to that. And many of you have heard Dr. Kirschbaum talk about this. When we talk about some of these stem cell therapies that are coming down the road, rehabilitation is going to be a big part of that because you're not just going to do a treatment and then send that individual home. You really need to do rehabilitation. Because if you're going to do something that improves that tissue, there probably has to be some sort of mechanical stress or some sort of physical stimuli that's going to help that area either repair or regenerate. And here's just a visual of that. So it's really just, as I said, regenerative uh, rehabilitation is just an integration of the two concepts. So current areas of research that we have done and have been doing here at Kessler are, and this is really kind of the brainchild of Dr. Jerry Malanga. Many of you may know Dr. Malanga from years ago, people who've been here for a while. Uh, he was here as a sports medicine physician at Kessler. Um, and he has really kind of embraced regenerative medicine. He's a physiatrist. Uh, as I said, he did a sports medicine fellowship. And uh, he does a lot of different regenerative uh, techniques as a treatment for his patients. And uh, it was a few years ago that he first approached me about using this in people, in people with spinal cord injury. His thinking is, if this works in people with spinal cord injury, I mean, this group is using their arms. If this is effective in this population, it's really going to be effective in an able-bodied population. And as I said, he's doing these techniques in his patients, and he's seeing good results. So the next step is to do research in this area. So I'm going to focus on the second item, which is the autologous microfragmented adipose tissue. But I just want to mention that we did do a study using platelet-rich plasma therapy. And for those who don't know it, platelet-rich plasma therapy is you know, in our body, the platelets are the cells. When you injure yourself, when you cut yourself, the platelets are the first cells to arrive to kind of initiate that healing process. Within them are growth factors. So platelet-rich plasma therapy um, is a... Is a type of therapy where you draw blood, about 60 ml of blood, spin it down and to isolate the platelets. And then what you would do is inject those platelets into the tendon or the damaged area. The idea is the platelets will release growth factors and initiate a healing process. We did a study with six patients uh, with spinal cord injury uh, several years ago and saw good effects 
with that. And in my mind, that was the next step. We were gonna, that was a, a study with no controls. So in my mind, I thought, well, we have to now do the controlled study. Dr. Malanga actually decided, had over that time, it started working in the area of autologous microfragmented adipose tissue. And while still continuing to treat his patients with PRP, he offered them different options. And he was seeing really good results with the adipose tissue. Um, and during that time also, more and more studies were coming out that had the controlled trials with PRP that were saying, yeah, maybe is it or isn't it better than regular conventional treatment? You know, the, the story's still unsolved in that. So we decided instead of doing another PRP study to do a study looking at the autologous microfragmented adipose tissue. So let's talk a little bit about that. So really what this is is we know adipose tissue in itself, and I mean, you know, there's different areas of the body where we can find these mesenchymal stromal cells. So people have heard about bone marrow stromal cells. I hesitate to use the term stem cell because a lot of times we're not always dealing with a stem cell. So the bone marrow is one area where you can go. That can be painful and is slightly invasive. Adipose tissue is another area. And for many people, some more than others, there's, it's freely available. And you can get that in the buttocks, the thighs, the abdomen. There's a number of different places. Now, um, this adipose tissue may contain cells that help facilitate healing. As I said, I'm, I'm hesitant to use the term stem cell, but there may be something about the adipose tissue that has what they call a paracrine effect in the sense that the cells, the adipose tissue in itself can help the healing uh, in that area. And if you think about the tendon as a rope, one, one analogy has been used. It's not so much that you're replacing or generating new strands. I mean, you may be, but maybe you're helping to strengthen the strands that are there to try to prevent them from tearing even more. So one way, there's different ways that you can break down the adipose tissue, right? Because you've got fat and you've got to do something with it so that you can inject it where you want to inject it. There's a number of different ways. There's enzymatic ways, so using enzymes to break it down. And then there's non-enzymatic ways. Um, and the lipogem system is a system that does this via non-enzymatic ways. And I'm going to go into this in a little more details uh, so that you understand what I'm talking about. And what this does is this, it concentrates the cells into a small volume. It breaks it down, uh, concentrates it into a small volume that can then be injected into the joint or wherever you want to inject it. So people are doing it in the shoulder. They're doing it in the knee. Um, and this is a potential treatment for chronic muscle skeletal conditions like shoulder pain or knee pain. Now again, lipogems is not a stem cell treatment, so I just want to make that clear. So the study we're doing here at Kessler is, our goal is to determine if autologous microfragmented adipose tissue injected under ultrasound guidance into people with chronic shoulder pain with spinal cord injury. This is a case series. This is just a pilot study, so we're doing this in 12 people. Um, and the inclusion criteria are 18 to 70 years of age, chronic spinal cord injury, meaning somebody who's been injured at least a year, 
Uh, they have shoulder pain greater than, on a numerical rating scale, greater than a four, so they have moderate shoulder pain. And they've failed conventional therapy, meaning they've tried physical therapy and it's just not working for them. So we, what we're really trying to uh, uh, treat in this population is those who've done, done therapy and then probably their next step is surgery. So we're trying to prevent them from having to go to surgery. So the procedures overall, this involves seven visits. There's a screening visit to make sure people qualify. We then have a treatment visit, and then we do a series of one-month follow-ups. So we do the injection, and then we follow them up at one month, two months, three months, uh, six months, and then we just added a one-year follow-up. And the goal is to see if they get relief, and then for how long this shoulder pain relief lasts. We do outcome measures at each uh, visit. Uh, we do a physical exam, a focused physical exam of the shoulder at each visit. We're doing ultrasound uh, at baseline and then at six months and one year. And for those individuals who qualified, for those of you who don't know, we have a three Tesla MRI unit here. And so for those individuals who are MRI compatible, we're doing MRIs on them too. And for those individuals, we're actually trying to do MRIs more frequently because we want to see if we can see change in the tendon over time. These are some of the measures we use. So the wheelchair user's shoulder pain index, or WSPI. This is a disease-specific measure. It measures shoulder pain during various functional activities. We also use the standard numerical rating scale. So that scale is 0 to 10 on a scale. You know, no pain to worst pain imaginable. That, that one a lot of people can comprehend a little bit better. We're also looking at changes or effects on function. So we use the brief pain inventory interference uh, seven, I7, and what that does is it acts, uh, asks people you know, what the interference on shoulder pain is during various functional activities, including sleep. So we're trying to not only look at pain, but function. We're also trying to get a global impression. So, I mean, this is the basic one. Do you feel better? Yes or no? Much improved, much worse, no change. And then, as I meant, said, ultrasound and the 3T MRI. This is the WSPI. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's 15 items. It's just a 10 centimeter visual analog scale. People mark the pain during uh, on, at various activities. Uh, you know, what's the pain intensity during wheelchair propulsion for uh, greater than five minutes up a ramp? All these different things. Uh, again, it's kind of a functional pain measure for shoulder pain. Uh, this is our ultrasound uh, scale. Um, so our intervention. So um, this is going to be the last time I say this, I think, but because it's quite a mouthful. But it's autologous microfragmented adipose tissue injection under ultrasound guidance. So we want to break this down into steps. So the steps are to harvest the adipose tissue, um, so the lipoaspiration. We then process that adipose tissue using the lipogem system. We're then going to inject this microfragmented adipose tissue using ultrasound guidance to guide where in the tendon we're going to inject. We're trying to identify the defects in the tendon and then inject there. Um, and uh, you often hear us calling this lipogems. 
because as I said, microfragmented adipose tissue starts to get a little cumbersome to say. So I'm just going to call this the lipogem streaming, okay? So this is the lipogem system. I'm going to go into this in a little more detail. I have some video because, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, but I think video is priceless. I think it'll help you understand it a little bit better. But the lipogem system is just this closed system where you take the aspirated fat, you inject it into one end, you then shake it and wash it, and then you're going to extract it at the other end, after at the end of the processing system. All the time there's a wash kind of flush going through the system. So as I said, pictures worth a thousand words, but video is priceless. So the first thing we're going to do is, now the sound, I'm just going to talk over this, but this is Dr. Malanga. And what we do is we, we do an anesthetic in the area. So this is just a mixture of uh, lidocaine and uh, normal saline that's infused into the abdominal area to anesthetize the area. So I mean, many people with spinal cord injury technically can't feel, but their body will feel feel it. So you definitely want to anesthetize the area even if the people don't have sensation. So he's infusing the area. He waits 15 minutes to make sure the area is nice and numb. And then the next step is going to be harvesting and transferring the lipoaspirate. So then what he's going to do, and for, for, for those who are squeamish, I apologize, but he's taking the cannula and he's kind of trying to break the fat up. Because the goal is to really break the fat up and then you're going to suck it out, uh, small amounts, and then in, insert it into the processing uh, device. And so you'll see that yellow capped plastic device, that's the lipogem system. Okay, so you see Dr. Malangas there breaking up the tissue. And then, let's see, so you're going to transfer. Trevor, what's the volume of tissue that's taken out? <laughs> oh boy, I think total, total volume might be about 60 ml. It then gets passed in, so it's, what we ultimately end up with is about uh, 10 to 15 ml of, of purified lipoaspirate. I should know that. So then the adipose tissue, so next what has happened is the aspirate is injected into the lipogem system and that's the first step in starting to break this fat down into a, a smaller particles. So it gets injected into the top part. There's a filter there which you know, serves as the first process to break it down. So he's taken all those syringes of the aspirated fat and he's injecting that into the system. Okay, give it a little shake. And then the next thing, so you've injected this stuff in there. The next thing is to start breaking it down a little further and you start shaking. So there's ball bearings actually, you can hear them right in the background. So what he starts doing is he starts shaking it and that's to break down the lipogems even more. Um, we joke this is an Italian product and so they say they're Maserati ball bearings. So anyway, so you break it down further 
and then the next step is to extract it, and in extracting it, we're pulling it out from the other end. And there's another fil uh, filter at that end that breaks the particles down even further. So we've gone through a series of steps to take the lipoaspirate and break it down to smaller particles. Once we have the lipoaspirate, we as a Gene was asking, we have about you know, anywhere from 12 to 15 ml of this purified looking lipoaspirate. And uh, the, the lipogems comes when you look at it, the little fat globules look like little fat gems. So they're lipogems, that's where the term comes from. Once we have this, we have it in a series of syringes, maybe with three ml in each syringe. We then, under ultrasound guidance, uh, try to identify the areas, or identify the areas, where there are tendon defects uh, or other injuries. So we'll inject, a lot of times in this population, we'll see supraspinatus tears, or uh, uh, some sort of arthritis, so acromioclavicular joint arthritis. So we're injecting this under ultrasound guidance. And then, uh, and that's the end of the treatment. Now, after we're done with the treatment, the protocol is, now in the able-bodied population, they'll often ask them to wear a, a sling or something like that to just, uh, to avoid using the arm for a couple days. You know, we can't do this in a wheelchair using population. Um, so what we tell them to do is to just resume normal activities as they tolerate because they're gonna have to wheel out to their car. We usually have uh, somebody come with them the day of the treatment so they don't have to drive home because we've just injected the joint. Uh, after 24 hours, people can start doing stretching. So we have a stretching protocol for them to follow. We have them avoid any heavy activities uh, during that first week. So we wanna make sure they're not gonna go out and go wheeling around the mall or anything like like that. We want them to take it a little easy on the shoulders. They can still transfer, they can still do what they might normally do, we just don't want them pushing it that hard. So for that first month we have people stretching um, and then after the, once they're done with the first month, they can start to do strengthening. And we, we have weights that we send people home, and we have a shoulder, shoulder protocol for them to follow, and they start to, to strengthen the shoulder as well. And then we follow them up uh, one month, two months, three months, six months, and 12 months. Uh, at this point, we've treated six patients so far, so six people out of the 12. And uh, we've really, I've had very impressive results. Um, the one thing, what's interesting, just to give you my perspective on what I've seen, so right after, so people tolerate the procedure pretty well. However, the injecting into the joint, so the lipoaspiration, there's really no complaints. Uh, the injecting into the shoulder, as you can imagine, can be quite painful, because you're going right in there, and you're doing tenotomy too, so you're trying to reinitiate an inflammatory process, and then lay these cells on top. Um, 
So uh, that can be quite painful for people. We're not doing it with any type of anesthetic because we don't want it to interfere with the healing process. Um, one of the other things we do is we also have people not take non-steroidals because what we're really trying to do is take advantage of the body's own ability to heal itself. And if you're taking a non-steroidal drug, you're going to inhibit the inflammatory process. So, um, so the treatment, you'll see some initial pain. Usually that shoulder pain from the treatment resolves within two to three days. Um, and then people go about their activities. Uh, and uh, What's been interesting is, in some individuals, we've seen some very dramatic improvements in their pain. Um, others, at that one month uh, time point, they still have pain, but what's been interesting is their function has improved. So the two things that are you know, most important to us is how you feel and how you function. And so, for example, we had one woman who, because of pain, couldn't lift her arm up over her head. She would use her other arm to raise, to raise that arm. And during that first month, she came back and she was saying she could now move her arm. She still had pain, but she was now able to to move her arm, and that meant a lot to her. Later on, as we progressed out into the course of the study, at about the two or three month time point, her pain also started to come down. And so that's one of the things we've seen is during, it usually takes about three months for people's pain to improve. So we're following them for a year because the goal really will be to see is at six months, will this pain relief uh, be there at six months and 12 months down the road? Uh, so, ah, there we go. Okay. So there we go. So preliminary results um, in a few minutes. So, um, you know, we have one individual who's at the six-month time point. He's completely pain-free. Uh, he kind of scares me. This gentleman scares me because he's such an active guy that I'm worried he's going to re-injure his shoulder. Uh, he likes to go for five-mile walks with his wife in his wheelchair. And he, he so he's a very active guy, and he's been actually one of our best uh, advocates for the studies, ranting and raving about it to his primary care doctor and other people. So they're, they're even interested in getting the treatment. So, um, so we've, we have three. So what I want to do is these, this, these are preliminary results on the first four individuals at the, the three-month or 12-week time point. So this is the numerical rating scale. So you see there's quite an impressive decline in uh, pain intensity. Same with the WISPY. And then uh, also improvements in function. So a higher score means there's higher interference with your function. So we're seeing impressive changes in that. Overall, global impression of change, how do you feel? Uh, three feel very much improved. One feels much improved. Now, the thing that is most important to me is we haven't caused harm. I mean, one of the things that scared me was injecting fat into somebody's shoulder. The last thing I want to do is take somebody who's upper limb dependent and hurt them more. Um, so I would say the results are promising so far. It's still very early in the study. Uh, so one of the questions, though, is, I mean, this is an uncontrolled study. So is this, you know, 
this is a very invasive place, uh, procedure. So is this just kind of a placebo effect? Or because we're doing tenotomy, tenotomy in itself, you know, taking a needle and poking the tendon and then allowing a healing to happen after that, combined with a stretching and therapy, that in itself is treatment. So are people just getting improvement because of that? So really, the, ultimately, the study's goal is to just collect some pilot data so that we can go on and do that next study. Um, it, the, the challenge will be trying to identify what would be a good comparator group to, to, to see if one is better than the other. So um, one, I want to thank the Durfner Foundation for funding this study. Uh, special thanks our study team, Dr. Jerry Malanga, um, who does the, the, the injections. Chris Charian is the other person in the video. He was the resident uh, helping Dr. Malanga. And then Sue Sauer down in outpatient and Mia Overby are uh, assisting with the procedures. And then Monica McCulloch is uh, our research coordinator. And then new to our team, say hi, everybody, Nathan Hogaboom. Nathan's a postdoctoral fellow who's just joined us. And actually, I'll use that as a segue. Next month, Nathan, Nathan actually comes from the, via the University of Pittsburgh and uh, worked with Mike Boninger, uh, Ali Kuntz, and so the group that developed the wheelchair guidelines lines and so uh, Nathan's been doing a lot of research in the area of uh, wheelchair transfers and that effect on tendons and, and stuff using ultrasound so next month's uh, grand rounds will be in that area thank you for being patient as we went through the technical glitches but I can show the video if you back up I'll show you the injection under ultrasound guidance so that's the injection under ultrasound so you can see, uh, you can actually see, if you are close enough to a screen, you'll see the needle enter into the tendon and inject the fat into that area. Thank you. To learn more about our research, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.